Uh, hey, good morning, Vaughn Forest. I am so glad uh, to be here this morning. I, it's always so humbling to be able uh, to stand up here and, uh, and give God's word. So thank you for being here. If you're watching us online this morning, a special welcome to you. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. Chad mentioned it, but every time I get up here, I feel like I don't do a good enough job of thanking you guys for the way uh, that you love and serve and give and pray over our staff, all the different ministries, just everything that you guys, the part that you play in making Vaughn Forest what Vaughn Forest is. It is so great to see that the people of God being the church that God has called us to. So thank you for what you do. Thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. Do not grow weary of doing what God has called us to do in furthering his kingdom into uh, the world that needs Jesus. Amen. So thank you, thank you, thank you for what you do. So we're going to wrap up this series uh, this morning, The Battle for your mind. And I think we've done a really, really great job. Our, our team has done, ha- had a really good vision for this series, and I'm, I, it's been really great to see how God has worked those things together, and we have navigated through this. And as Chad started a couple weeks ago talking, kind of defining what anxiety looks like, and at the heart of our anxiety is really a control issue. How we want control of things in our life, I want to have the final say on how things go. And when things do not go my way or when things seem out of my control, guess what that creates? Anxiety. When the, when the answer to that is giving control to the one who holds all of humanity in his hands. And Adam Mitchell has been here and been such a great job of working us through the idea of things that can creep into our mind, things like shame. And how do we view shame? How do, how do we move past shame? And the key to that is not looking at us through the lens of our shame, but looking at ourselves the way God looks at us, and that's through the blood of Jesus. And then Adam also talked about battling busyness and how busyness can create issues in our life when we have things that are out of whack, when our priorities may be different. And so today, I want us to kind of look at the idea of what, what is hope? How do, we, how do we find hope? What are we doing to, to be people that are finding hope in the battle for our mind? The idea is, I'm gonna give you kind of the end result already. The big idea is that God offers hope, not just for heaven, but also for here on earth. Do you know the key to winning the battle for your mind? Hope. You know what the key is to waking up every morning and knowing you're dealing with the anxiety or the depression or the fear or the shame or the guilt or the regret or the busyness? You know what the key to beating those things is? It's hope. And so that's where we are going to be this morning. So quick story, just kind of set up this idea of what hope is and how we can have a biblical view of what hope looks like. When I was a kid, uh, our family would take family vacations. If you've never been on family vacation, I'm going to take the assumption that all of you have. It is a blast, and also for some of you, your worst nightmare. So it's for some of you parents in here, it's never a vacation for the kids in the room, or if you, can, if you can channel your inner child, some of the best memories that you've ever had, right? And so when my brother and my sister and I would be in the car with my mom and my dad, we would play driving games. You, you, you're driving where we go to Gatlinburg, we go to the beach, or go visit grandparents, or whatever the case may be, wherever we're going, we would play driving games. Because when I was growing up, we didn't have, I, I'm, not, I'm not that old, but I didn't have an iPad in front of me. I didn't have those kind of things. My parents would have loved that because I would have probably been much more quiet. But we played driving games. 
whether it be I Spy, Punch Buggy, we would do all kind of stuff. One of my favorite ones is the, the passenger, whether, so if my dad's driving, it was usually my mom, would say, hey, Matt, or Mason, or Marley, whichever one of our siblings, if you had a million dollars, what would you do with it? And so it's, it's, it's funny to see how, like, growing up, my answers got different. Like, at six years old, it's like, a million dollars worth of Legos. That's what I want. That would be so good. And my parent, my mom was like, absolutely not. I don't care even if, it, if you have free reign over your million dollars. You're not buying a million dollars worth of Legos because I don't like picking up your $20 worth of Legos now. I'm not picking up a million dollars worth of Legos, right? My house is going to be covered in Legos. And then as I get older into my teenage years, like 13, 14, it's like, oh, I'm looking forward to driving. And so if I had my a million dollars and I had all like no restraints, I would be whatever super fantastic car that I could get. And what I found is I got older and wider and taller is you can't just pick any car that you want. You got to pick one you fit in. Like I would not look good in Lamborghinis. I got rolling out of, a, of something like it just would not go well, right? Yeah, I hear that. <laughs> I wouldn't go super... Well, and I remember like my mom and dad would ask me questions. Well, would you do, would you do something for your brother or your sister? Would you, would you give them anything? And I'd think, and I'd say, nope, I wouldn't give them anything. They're not getting any. What about, what about us? What about mom and dad? Are we going to get anything? You'll pay off the house. I know what that meant at 13 years old, but are you going to do this or do that? And, no, I don't think I will. I think I'll keep it. And then it was like, well, okay, are you going to give your 10% to the church? No, they'll be okay. They don't need it. It's fine. They don't need my, they don't need my, my, my imaginary $100,000. They don't need that. Why do I tell you this story? It's kind of the idea of when we have those fantasy kind of moments, sometimes we have actually taken the word hope and substituted it for the word wish. What, what, what are some other examples? Last week, when we all thought like the snowpocalypse was coming, and I don't know if you guys saw any snow, but I didn't see any, right? But I go out to my car, and some of you still had to go to work, and you went out to your car in the freezing cold, and it's like negative 17 degrees, and you hope that when you turn the key in your car. You hope that bad boy cranks. You hope your battery will start that car. Or that maybe if you're managing right now your investments and you hope the economy will swing this way or that way or the way that benefits you in the most, you hope that that happens. You hope, maybe, that maybe your job will get better or maybe this relationship with this person would get better. But from a biblical perspective, perspective, that's not really what hope is. Those are wishes. What's the difference? Well, when it comes to the battle for our minds, the Christian life is built on a foundation of hope, not upon a wish. Wishes bring a temporary solution. It provides a fleeting daydream fix, not a fixed point that we can progress towards. Here's one of the best way I've ever heard it said. Wishes are like bubbles. And again, channel your inner child with me just for a second. I love bubbles. Big fan of bubbles, right? I'm sure somewhere on campus today, some of our preschool or kids ministry, somebody's blowing bubbles somewhere. Why? Because it's fun. Because they're great. But they only last for just a second. Because after a few seconds and you have a little baby and you blow a bubble and they think it's the greatest thing and they're looking around, what happens to that bubble? It pops, and you just broke their little heart right in front of them, right? They just think it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Wishes are just like bubbles, and the fact of they're there for just a second, and they seem so much fun and so good, but they pop, and then what are you left with? 
if your life is built upon wishes, when your mind and your body and your soul are failing, when you are losing the battle for your mind, when you lose your job, when the reality hits you that your marriage actually may not make it, when you get the phone call that you have been dreading for months or weeks or even years, when you lose someone close to you that you love, I would argue that a wish does not do much for you in those scenarios. But something that can sustain us in and through those times is hope. This morning, we're going to look at the hope that God has given us through the person of his son, Jesus. We're going to look at hope all the way back into the beginning of Scripture. I'm going to give you just a, just a, just, I mean, just a look into where we're going. We're going from Genesis to Revelation this morning, so y'all better buckle in. It's not going to be that long. i got like 25 minutes, so y'all are going to be okay, I promise. So all the way from the beginning of time to the promise that God gives to his people in the Old Testament, to hope that's personified in Jesus and to the hope that we have in eternity. We'll see all of those things in the perspective of how can we find hope in this life, but also in eternity. So here's, the first, here's our first point this morning. If you're taking notes, you can pull those out. From the very beginning, there was hope. From the very beginning, there was hope. So if I say at the very beginning there was hope, we're going to go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3 this morning. So this verse kind of gives you an idea of where we're picking up because it's just one verse. This is God speaking to the serpent, to the enemy, after God has found out, as if he did not already know, God has caught Adam and Eve in their sin. And he's called them out of hiding to approach God and say, hey, where, where'd you go? Where have you been? What have you been doing? And Adam says, Eve made me do it, right? And like, this is where we see God now dishing out punishment. God is giving out the justice punishment, justice and punishment for what Adam and Eve have done. And so he turns his attention to the serpent and he says this. He says, and I will cause hostility between you, again, you being the serpent, you being the enemy, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Again, when Adam and Eve failed to obey the one rule that God had set for them, God did not destroy them, which he would have served justice in doing so, but instead, God, in this verse, reveals the covenant of grace to them by promising them a Savior. He says that the offspring from woman will crush the head of the enemy. The enemy might strike his heel, but the offspring Jesus, there will be a Savior who comes and crushes the heel of the enemy. Church, this is already good news, and we're just three chapters into Scripture. That the God of the universe had a plan for us to be saved from our sin from the very beginning. That there would be a lethal blow dealt to Satan himself, and that God would prevail over sin. We could close it and be done right there and say amen. Luckily, you guys are in for a treat because we're not going to do that. And so fast forward a long time. 
The prophet Jeremiah says this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later to God's people. He says, the day will come, says the Lord, when I will do for Israel and Judah all the good things I have promised them. The promise that there would be a Messiah, the promise that there would be a Savior, the promise that something big was coming for God's people. And he starts quoting prophecy. He says, in those days and at that that time, I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line, and he will do what is just and right throughout the land. And in that day, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety, and this will be its name. The Lord is our righteousness. If you know a whole lot about the prophet Jeremiah, if you don't, it's okay, I'm going to tell you some. Jeremiah is not typically the guy who brings great news. For the most part, Jeremiah actually brings some really terrible news. He tells the entire people of God, hey, by the way, you guys are going to be in captivity to the Babylonians for about 70 years. That's not great news. Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet, the lamenting prophet. He was bringing news that would make you cry. But the last couple of chapters in Jeremiah, just like you see in Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has a plan and a promise for, the, for his people. And in Jeremiah 33 here, you see that God is saying, I will fulfill the promise. And this is the promise that God has given to his people for restora- restoration, for salvation for the people of God. God is saying to them, I will take care of this. I will bring forth a leader, a savior, the Messiah from the same line as David, and I will preserve this promise. God says, I contain all the playing cards. I will make a way. I will provide. The Lord gives this promise to his chosen people for redemption for salvation. And that is encouraging that all throughout the Old Testament, from the beginning to Jeremiah to the very last word in Malachi, God is saying, I will provide a Savior. The Messiah is coming. And you sit there this morning, and I, and I know what you're thinking. You say, Matt, that's, that's great news. Man, for the people of Israel, for, for, for those people thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, that's, that's great news. That's good, man, good for them. But in 2024, Matt, what about me? Like right now. Because if you're honest, you're sitting there and you're losing the battle for your mind. We're, t- we're talking about finding hope this morning and you have found everything but hope in your life recently. So what about me? What, what, is, what, what is the fact that, that there was hope for God's people then? What does that do for me now? Well, I am very glad that you have come to that conclusion. Because the hope that God was promising to his people is the same hope that you and I have today. The next point. If my trust is in God, then I know that there is hope for today. If my hope is found in the fact that I have placed my trust in God. If my trust is in God, then I know that there is hope for today. Now, I didn't put it on there, and I should have. This if should be in like all bold, underline, italics, all caps, everything that I could, could get it to, so you guys would see attention to this. This is a massive if statement. Only if your trust has been in God. If your life has been one that has been surrendered to God, if you have said, God, you are the Lord and boss of my life, then and only then in your life is there hope. Because if that's not true for you this morning, 
If you have not surrendered your life to Jesus, if you are not someone who's following Jesus, if you are not a Christian, whatever statement or phrase that resonates most with you, if you've not given your life to the one who created you and sent his son to die for you, this statement, may, it's not true for you. You may not have hope. Outside of Jesus, outside of the saving work of Jesus, there is no hope for humanity. But if my trust is in God, then I know that there is hope for today. What does Paul say in Romans 15? He says this. He says, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes uh, reading scripture is difficult. I'm going to be completely honest. Anyone who's ever said it's the easiest thing they've ever done, probably a lot. It's hard sometimes. It's hard to understand how all these things fit together, and there's like all these pages and books and different people and stories and some really strange stories. And how, how does all this work? I just, I don't understand this. This is really complicated. Luckily, this morning, this verse is, does not fall into that category. This is very clear. The very first statement, that God, the source of hope. We have said that hope is more than just a wish, Hope is a joyful expectation that has a foundation. It's rooted in someone. It's not a theory or a philosophy. This verse, this verse tells us that hope is a person. Hope is Jesus. Our hope is God. Our hope is the reality that's rooted completely in God. It's not something we have to work for. It's not something that we maybe can aspire to one day. The truth is that no matter your situation or how bleak your circumstances are when you walked in here this morning, no matter how loud the battle for your mind is today, you can know that the source, the foundation, the cornerstone of your physical and your mental and spiritual state can be built on the mainstay that is Christ Jesus. And I know that that's a lot easier for me to stand up here and just say, and it's much tougher to be acted out on or for that to be true in your life. It's easy just to say it, but what makes it true? How can that be true for us? Because fear and anxiety and depression and shame and regret, all the things that are, that are players in the battle for our mind, they seem to be really, really loud. It seems to be all that my mind can focus on are, are all the things that are happening in my life, all the negative things, all the anxiety and stress and things that are happening. But here's the issue. We have feared the wrong things. Now, what I'm not saying is that your fear and your anxiety and your stress and your depression are not real. I am not saying that. I know that they are very, very real. I know that there are very, very real struggles and things that we as humans deal with. But things change in terms of what are our priorities and our perspectives if we fear God. Now, this is what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we are so scared of God that when we mess up or sin or fall into temptation, that we have to run and hide like Adam and Eve did and just sit there and rock back and forth so scared of the wrath of God being poured out on us. Now, there are moments in Scripture where that is a very healthy attitude to have. 
But when I talk about the fear of the Lord, when Scripture's talking about the fear of the Lord, it is not talking about running away and hiding from God your Father. It's talking about this holy reverence for God. In the South, you hear it all the time. Oh, that's a God-fearing lady right there. Yeah. That's a God-fearing man. That's a God-fearing family. What does that mean? It means people who are characterized by having a healthy, holy reverence for God. And so in the battle for our mind, when we have the fear of God, all those loud players fade into the background. All the anxiety fades. My stress fades. I didn't say it's gone. But when I keep my mind focused on the fact that I can have a fear of God, that I can have a holy reverence of who God is, this should drive how we live today. Paul talks about that. That we, when we recognize that God is the source of our life, when we put our trust in him, then you will overflow with confident hope to the power of the Holy Spirit. Hope should be a vital characteristic of a Jesus follower because God has given us hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. When I'm thinking about a battle, I've never been to one, I've been to a reenactment, I didn't like how loud that was. But when I think of a battle, I think about how loud things would probably be. Like, I, I'm not even sure I could think straight with how loud a battle is. When I think of a battle, I think of, again, something that's loud. Chaos. Just craziness. Things up in the air. No order whatsoever. And sometimes in the battle for our mind, in the trenches of that battle, that's what our mind can feel like. That it's chaotic. It's loud. I'm stressed. I don't know up from down. I can't do this. I can't do that. I am so stressed out. I don't even know what to do. So what's the opposite of that? Like if we're finding hope and effort of finding the opposite of winning the battle in our mind, what, where do we want our mindset to be? I would say the opposite of the battle for my mind is peace of mind. A peace that, that passes all understanding that comes only from God. Scripture tells us, hey, how do we get that peace? Scripture tells us that refreshing times from the Lord will come when? When we repent. Do you want peace in your life? Repent. Are you craving times of refreshment in your life? Now, again, when I was a kid, if someone said times of refreshments, I thought that meant snacks. And I figured out it was snacks, and I like those, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about times of peace and tranquility and the peace that does pass all understanding. Do you crave that in your life? If so, repent. Is there sin in your life that's fueling the battle for your mind? Repent. Is there a pride issue in your life? Repent. Is there hidden sin in your life this morning? Repent. Is there bitterness in your soul against somebody or against God? Repent. Repent. What does that mean? It means turn away from your sin and run toward the way of Jesus. Listen, here's the key. Repentance is the path to life and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the best possible way to live. So when we repent, it leads us to a life of obedience. And too many people think that following Jesus is this head down, somber, heavy religious duty. No, following Jesus in obedience is like a fresh drink of water when you're exhausted. 
And if you know what exhausted is, just wait till July or August around here and you come in from inside, you'll know what exhausted feels like and you want water. And that's what following Jesus is like. The obedience of Jesus is refreshing. And so because of our repentance that leads us to obedience, the end product is hope. I have a hope in who Jesus is. My trust is founded in the work of Jesus on the cross. And so I repent from my sin and I obey and live how he's called me to live. And because of that, I can have hope to really trust in Jesus, to really win the war in your mind. Repent from your sin. Obey what God has called you to do. And that can lead you to be hopeful in this life. So God has always been hope. There's always been the promise of hope. You can have hope for today, but what happens when your life comes to an end? What happens when, the time, when your time on this earth is done? When you take your last breath? How do we view hope through the lens of eternity? Our last point this morning. In the battle for my mind, I keep fighting because of hope. Like this, this sums up the entire series. This is the answer. Keep fighting. I know some of you this morning want to quit. The battle is too loud. The battle is too hard. I'm too exhausted. I'm too tired. Keep fighting. Why? Because of hope. Not because of any self-help antidote. Not because of any special formula that we have to give you but because of the hope that we have in the person of Jesus Christ, we can have a hope of heaven. Titus chapter 2 gives us a really great glimpse of this process of how we go from placing our trust in Jesus to living as he's called us to live into the moment where we will see him again. Titus chapter 2 verse 11 says this, says, For the grace of God has been revealed bringing salvation to all people. What is that? The moment that salvation was revealed to you, the moment that you realized, I am a sinner that needs a Savior. And you accept Jesus into your life, he changes who you are, and he calls you a Christian. What's this process called? Well, the fancy term is justification. And justification, by definition, is the moment where you are declared not guilty that you've been caught repeatedly in your sin. You have openly said, hey, you know what, God? I like my way better, and I'm going to do that. Your way is not really good. That's really what sin boils down to. In any essence, it's saying, hey, I like my way better than I like God's way. That I'm God and God's really not. That's what sin looks like. But the moment you realize that, and upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was born, that he lived a perfect life, he died a death that you deserved, that I deserved, but he didn't stay dead. He rose three days later and defeated death, hell, and the grave, and now has gone to prepare a place for the people who are now following him. That's the gospel of Jesus. And so you've placed your trust in him, that you're forever changed. You are justified. Why? Because Christ was willing to pay sentencing for you. This is justification. It just means that the charges are no longer attributed to you. Jesus has paid your penalty in full. And at that moment, God justifies you, and that status can never be changed because you are safely within the hand of your Savior. 
When this happens, God declares you saved. Your scandalous rap sheet has been wiped clean. And you can have everlasting life through the sacrifice of Jesus. You have been justified through your faith in him. Justification day is a very good day. So the moment that we are saved, fancy words being justified, Titus goes on to say this. So we've been saved, so now what? What do we do? Well, he says, and we are instructed, after salvation has been revealed to us, says we are instructed to turn from godless living. That means repent. To repent from godless living and sinful pleasures, we should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God. We call this process, it's really fancy, sanctification. Now, I've taught this before, and I had some students as a student pastor at other places, they get confused between sanctification and sanitation. It's not the same thing, right? It is not hand sanitizer. It is not, I mean, you can make that correlation probably. You are wiped clean, right? But it's not the same. Sanctification. It's a fancy word. You know what we really, it's discipleship. It's the life that I'm living as I'm following Jesus, it's the process of holiness that is continually worked on from the day of conversion until the moment of completion. We call this discipleship. Paul gives a good idea of like the mindset we should have as we walk through this life as people who are following Jesus. It says this in, this in Colossians 3. Since you have been raised to new life. So again, to quote Titus, that since salvation has been revealed to you, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. From a heavenly perspective, sanctification is God's process of making you more like him, making you more holy. And then from an earthly perspective, the part we play, discipleship is our effort in that process of becoming more like Jesus. The simplest way I can put it, this sanctification process, it's the battle, the daily battle to repent from sin, avoid temptation, and follow Jesus. That refreshment we talked about, this is when we need it every single day. We need his new mercies every single morning, and I need those mercies and some from another morning too. I need all the mercy that I can get. This life is hard, and the hope of heaven that we have through a relationship with Jesus is what gets us through those times, and it's what keeps things in great perspective in the really good times in your life. So if you're following Jesus, or maybe you're not, but here's the process. You have been justified if you placed your faith in Christ. You are working through the sanctification process right now to be more like Jesus and less like my old sinful self. So what happens in regards to eternity? Titus finishes up in verse 13. We do all of that, the process of living a righteous life. We do that while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. The fancy word for this, glorification. The day when we meet Jesus face to face, either on this side of eternity or another, and we don't worry about sin anymore. To know that the God who justify us will also glorify us, as it says in Romans 8. We can have eternity to enjoy the person 
of Jesus. We can say good riddance to the unholiness of our lives and of this earth, which is present in this current world. Isaiah, the prophet, says this in Isaiah 35 about this day, about this moment, about what's happening. He says, those who have been ransomed by the Lord, those who have been saved, those whom salvation has been revealed to, they, by the Lord, will return. Those who have been ransomed by the Lord will return, and they will enter Jerusalem singing, crowned with everlasting joy. Sorrow and mourning will disappear, and they will be filled with joy and gladness. Church, hear the word of God this morning. That there is a day coming, if your trust is in Jesus, where you will return to the physical presence of God. When your suffering and your sorrow and your mourning will run away and turn into joy and gladness. In Revelation, the Apostle John writes what he sees and writes a prophecy, and he says, He, he being Jesus, Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. You know what the old order of things looks like? The battle for your mind. All the anxiety wiped away. All the stress in your life wiped away. All the hurt that you feel, all the sorrow that you have in your life, the fear of the what-if statements and, and all the things that might happen to you, the shame of your decisions, the regret from some of the mistakes you've had in your life, all of those things will pass away because the old way, the old order of doing things is dead and gone. They've passed away in the new heavens and the new earth will come. Church, it's just a matter of time. So what do we do? What do we do now? We wait. We wait and lean into a future that is filled with hope. We repent and turn away from the sin that is in our lives, that is keeping us held down in the battle for our minds. And in the art of repentance, we catch glimpses of the glorious hope that awaits us in Christ Jesus. Some of the very last verses in Scripture, Revelation 22, it's the last line that we see in Scripture given by Jesus. It says this, says, He who is the faithful witness, what does that mean? Jesus, who was the Savior in Genesis, who was the Savior, the promised Messiah in Jeremiah. He's the promise that we talked about. He's the source of our hope in Romans. He has justified us. He is sanctifying us, and he will glorify us. He is the faithful witness that says all of the words in this book, all of the promises, all of the truth, all of the mercy and the grace that he gives to us, every bit of it is true. And he is the faithful witness that says it's true. And what does he say? He says, yes, I am coming soon. Churches, people who are in the sanctification process, who are looking with a hopeful expectation of that glorification process, this should be our promise that John says. The fancy word is Maranatha. You know what that means? 
Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Like, think about that. We say that sometimes. We say amen sometimes in Southern culture a good bit. That Jesus, again, has said, all of this is true. Everything I've prophesied, everything I've ever said is true. And John just kicks back and says, amen. It is true. And because it's true, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because my trust is in God, because my hope is in God, because I know that there has always been hope. There is hope for today. And because I've been justified, I'm being sanctified, and I know I will be glorified, there is hope for eternity. And so all I can say in all of all of Scripture is come quickly, Lord Jesus. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, if you've never experienced this process of being justified by the blood of Jesus, today is your day. Let today be your justification day. Let your heart cry out with everything in you. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We need that. More so today than ever before. And we'll need it more tomorrow than we did today. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Pray with me this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. And God, we praise you that it is so full of truth, that every word of it is true. Every line is the story of how you are working your son into our lives. God, how we just play a part in that a measly small part, God, that you are saving us, that you have justified us, God, that you are sanctifying us. And Father, we pray fervently for the day that we can look forward to where you will glorify us in heaven with you. God, on the days where the battle for our minds seems so loud and it's raging so chaotically, God, may we be reminded, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Remind us of the day where you revealed salvation to us. let our heart cry out come quickly Lord Jesus come quickly Lord Jesus and God may we be ready with a fixed view of how hope is founded in you and only you God may you have your way in in this place right now these things we ask in your name the only name in which we can have hope in the name of Jesus Amen